Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. In late November, Human Rights Watch released a report detailing a spate of summary executions and enforced disappearances committed by the Taliban since taking over control of Afghanistan. The report documents the killing or disappearance of members of the Afghan National Security Forces who had surrendered to or were apprehended by Taliban forces between August 15th and October 31st. My guest today, Patricia Gossman, is the lead author of that report. She is Associate Asia Director for Human Rights Watch, and in our conversation, we use her report as an entry point for a wider conversation about human rights in Afghanistan under the Taliban. This includes a long discussion of Afghanistan's collapsing economy, which is causing widespread suffering. The World Food Program warned recently that Afghanistan's economic crisis could make over 22 million people at risk of extreme levels of food insecurity. The risk of famine in Afghanistan today is very real. We recorded our conversation live via Twitter Spaces. I'm an official partner with Twitter to create content using their new audio platform Spaces. Essentially, what this means is that I host two spaces a week in which I conduct my regular podcast interview, and then I open it up to audience participation. It's been great so far. We've been doing this for a couple weeks, uh, and we had about 600 people listening to this conversation live. The best way to get notified of when these are being held is to follow me on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. Otherwise, you can just keep on listening to this podcast episode. No need to listen live. This is uh, why I have the podcast. It's on-demand audio. And before we start, I want to plug a recent episode of my special cryptocurrency and global development series. Uh, This series has as a premise that the most interesting and innovative crypto projects today are being developed in the developing world in general, and frankly, sub-Saharan Africa in particular, to address real-world obstacles to economic development and achieving the sustainable development goals. And in this episode, I speak with a social entrepreneur from Burkina Faso named Larba Nadieba. He is the founder of a blockchain startup called eFoncier, foncier means land in French, that seeks to reform land management and record keeping in Burkina Faso and beyond. As he explains in our conversation, it's very difficult in Burkina Faso to obtain formal land records, and this is particularly true if you're a smallholder farmer in a rural part of the country. Yves Foncier is working in rural communities in Burkina Faso to put land titles on the blockchain. As Larba Nadieba explains, formally connecting farmers and landowners with the land that they actually own in a way that is verifiable opens up a suite of financial services to these individual smallholder farmers. For example, if they are able to prove ownership of land, they can take out a loan against it. They can collateralize their property and more formally enter the economic system. 
It's a fascinating project. There's more to Yfoncier than just that, as Larba Nadieva explains. And I think it's just a very interesting and innovative way to harness this new technology in a way that addresses a very real obstacle to development and economic inclusion in Burkina Faso and beyond. To access that episode and other episodes in the special cryptocurrency and global development series, please visit patreon.com slash global dispatches or click the link in the show notes of this episode. And now here is my conversation with Patty Gossman of Human Rights Watch. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. We started really looking into this issue as the Taliban were moving through the, you know, in many of the provincial uh, capitals up until when they took Kabul on August 15th. And seeing even then a rise in sort of summary executions, revenge killings for the most part, as they confronted and uh, captured uh, former members of the Afghan National Security Forces. So in a sense, there was kind of a first wave of these as cities fell to the Taliban. What is, so I think most important in our research, we continue to follow this since August 15th, looking specifically at four provinces, but I note that the reports we've received about these kinds of abuses have come from many provinces in the country. So in the initial period after the takeover, uh, the Taliban called on um, former members of the Afghan National Security Forces, and this would include members of the army, members of the police, which operated as a combat force, members of what were known as the Afghan local police, which was set up in 2010 by the US as a community-based policing force to fight the Taliban, and also militia forces that were um, associated with uh, the government. So all of these groups and the National Directive of Security, which is the uh, former government's intelligence service, which also played a combat role. So you have this array of combat forces. And as the Taliban took control of areas, they announced that former members of these forces had to come register and to turn in their weapons, which is, you know, kind of a normal thing when you're in a combat situation. But um, we found that in many cases, after any of these forces registered, some of them would get essentially the knock on the door some days later and be taken into custody. And in some cases, never seen again by their families um, who do not know to this day whether they're in prison or their families later within days or weeks found the bodies of their relatives having been executed by the Taliban. Um, the provinces we focused on were Helmand, Kandahar, Kunduz, and Ghazni. But as I say, we have heard since um, from many provinces, particularly more in the east now, where this has happened. The other way that they identified people 
after, apart from this registration process, was as the Taliban took control, they came into possession of a lot of documentation, employment records, biometric data, uh, all the files left behind by the government that that fled the country, essentially, and left all the documents in place. Um, And so it's been very easy for the Taliban in the weeks following the takeover to really search out and find people they want to target. Um, So even weeks after, we find people being taken into custody and some cases executed. Is there a particular um, incident or individual whose story you tell in the report that is sort of indicative of what you just explained, that is illustrative of this sort of process by which the Taliban sort of force people to identify themselves as having been part of the opposition or the the government or whatever? Um, Are there any sort of individual anecdotes that are illustrative? Well, yes. Let me tell one from Kunduz. Um, Because it was quite striking also in in that it was carried out with a certain, somewhat dramatically, uh, the former um, head of the investigation unit at Kunduz prison, who would have had plenty of opportunities to be identified by uh, Taliban. You know, the Taliban emptied all the prisons as they took control of various cities. Um, They asked him to come back to resume his job um, after he had registered with them. And then when he entered the gates to return to his work, between two two kind of sections of gate, he was just summarily shot. So clearly a planned execution where they actually told him to come back for his job before killing him. Taken together, what does your report suggest to you uh, about the Taliban's approach to governing Afghanistan right now? Well, I'd say, you know, their response to this report is indicative. They did say, in fact, they said fairly early on, even before our report, um, which indicates they were aware these killings were going on, that they had set up a commission to make sure that members of their forces accused of, of theft, of other abuses against the population would be held accountable. Now, since our report, they responded directly to us, saying that indeed they intended to hold people accountable um, that these were rare cases, personal enmity, and so on. Well, they're not rare. I mean, there are, you know, we have 100 cases, um, but that's probably the tip of the iceberg. I think the problem is, um, and it is very indicative of their the problems they face governing and the um, their failures so far in governing, is this will require them to confront commanders, military leaders in the field, people they have relied on these last 20 years to carry out the fight, and confront them over these kind of abuses or abuses by the rank and file. The Taliban are unwilling from what we can see to do that, having promised their fighters in a way, the chance of revenge, having recruited people on the basis of the chance to get revenge. How then, you know, do they turn around and say, no, um, you, you can no longer do that. They so far have not shown themselves willing to do that. So if they cannot confront their own men, to ensure accountability, that's a huge problem for them going forward as a government. So it's almost like an intra-Taliban political challenge you're describing, that you have um, political leaders who are unable to apply pressure or um, demand accountability by the commanders that they have recruited to 
you know, prosecute this war? Well, exactly. I mean, we're seeing that also with the uh, evictions that have taken place. Um, as the Taliban have reasserted control over areas, they are taking and redistributing land to their followers, to people who, those who fought with them, but also communities that supported them, which means evicting people who are already there. Um, it's uh, it, That's part of a long problem in Afghanistan. Whoever is in power tends to then decide who gets the land. Um, but you know, in some cases, it's also because they need to pay people. They there are challenges they face with their own men in a country with a collapsing economy. How are they even able to pay the people again who have fought for them? And there's already indications of resentment in their ranks about you know the the, the challenges even their fighters now face, putting food on the table and and meeting their debts and so on. You referenced Afghans' collapsing economy. This has been a key concern around the United Nations, which I, I cover more closely. You know, ever since September around the UN General Assembly, every time that uh, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres spoke to the press or spoke publicly about Afghanistan, he warned about this looming economic crisis, a liquidity crisis in Afghan's economy. Basically, you know, there's not enough cash to go around. And you just uh, mentioned how that's affecting the Taliban's ability to pay its uh, its, its own soldiers. Can you sort of describe this crisis as best uh, you can to those of us you know, who don't follow Afghanistan very closely? What is, what's at the root of this economic crisis right now in Afghanistan? Well, I think in some ways it, 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 it being called a humanitarian crisis can sometimes be, uh, it doesn't really give the full sense of it because people don't understand, maybe don't understand that it's much more than a standard, you know, we have a, a drought and therefore people are hungry. It's way more than that. What is really at the heart of it is that a country that was 75, 80% dependent on foreign aid has suddenly lost that aid. And so at the moment, there's a, a enormous banking crisis. People have money in the bank. They cannot withdraw. Um, there's a liquidity crisis. There just isn't enough exchange. There isn't enough. There's not just not enough cash available. So people are not going hungry because there's a drought. I mean, that's a factor in it, but mainly because they cannot, they don't have the cash to buy food. Plus, uh, thousands of people have lost their jobs because their jobs were associated with the former government. They're no, they don't exist anymore, or they are certainly not the ones being employed in that way. Um, think of the, the teachers that are not working because some of the schools, many of the schools, like, you know, a good percentage, most of the girls' secondary schools are not functioning. Um, women who work in all sorts of fields are not at work anymore, and many of them were the only breadwinners. But fundamentally, this was a crisis long foreseen in sense of the way the Afghan state was entirely dependent, on, almost entirely dependent on foreign aid. Once you pull that rug out, then it's not a surprise that everything collapses. Now what can be done is, first of all, is I think that the urgency of that situation while it's been said, you're still hearing governments talk about, oh, the humanitarian situation is lived, if, as if sending big bags of wheat was going to solve it. That is not what's going to solve it. What's going to solve it is addressing how to get banking functioning again as a first priority. And just to, to, to put some, but the humanitarian side of this economic crisis in context, the World Food Program 
uh, just the other week estimated that something like 22.8 million people are going to are likely this winter to face life-threatening levels of food insecurity and that you know a famine is, is very much in the realm of of possibility in afghanistan so the the humanitarian consequences of this are just deeply profound they are i mean this is a country with something like 35 million 36 million people so that's way more than half and many of those are young people many of them will be children uh, who will suffer the worst consequences of this so you know this challenge of somehow supporting the Afghan banking system without um, enabling, I suppose, the de facto Taliban government is something that the international community has been sort of like have like needs to confront in order to avert a catastrophe. Like, what are you seeing? What are you hearing about like approaches to this challenge? I think there are some very interesting explorations of this, but they're all being stymied, and I have to say, largely coming from the U.S. side, of a an attitude which seems to be, well, look, we told the Taliban this would happen, and look, it happened, as if they no longer bear any responsibility for the fact that it has happened. And given the enormous um, power the U.S. has over international finance institutions, um, this is this is one of the major obstacles to fixing this problem. I think with enough, you know, foresight, goodwill to to really address it and not come at it with, oh, now we're going to punish the Taliban, is if you know, making the Taliban fail is somehow helping the Afghan people when they are starving at the moment. It's just it's a ludicrous um, proposition. So what we need to see is the political will on the part of. The, the P5, the U.S. in particular, to address this and address it now. So, so what would be some like concrete steps that the United States could take to that end? Well, I think looking at some of the examples in, you know, it's not the first time um, the, the world has faced um, a kind of banking liquidity liquidity crisis in a country. And we can look at other, I can't get into the, the specifics, I'm not a macroeconomist, but uh, Yemen, Venezuela are two examples people have raised about ways one can get the kind of um, to address this without lending support to authorities who may misuse the funds for other purposes. So that's really what I mean. The ideas are out there. It's um, what's a, the problem is political at this point. And, and do you think that this political challenge will only be overcome once we start to see sort of massive levels of, of starvation and dying this winter? Uh, it, like, as you said, yeah, I've been following this for, for a while, and there does not seem to be like much movement on the part of the U.S. administration, at least, uh, in any sort of meaningful way to help you know, solve or resolve this liquidity crisis. But like, we're what's, already what's seeing that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, the reports, New York Times had a piece out, Washington Post had, Guardian has had, other, you know, major international press have covered this. We already see in the hospitals in in Afghanistan, severely malnourished children showing up, people with diseases and so on they shouldn't have if they had enough to eat. We are interviewing people on the ground by, by phone mostly, but um, uh, describing uh, just horrendous descriptions of, you know, when the last time you will had more than one meal a day. Um, what are you doing to survive? We hear reports of people selling their children. I mean, uh, it's staring us in the face. Um, yes, more people die this winter because we're now already in a very cold uh, you know, period in, in Afghanistan for much of the country. Um, people also have to you know, somehow scrounge together money to buy fuel. 
Um, so it's not like it's off in the in the futures. It's 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 happening now. So the last uh, episode I did on Afghanistan, uh, in which I spoke to a non-Afghan and international person, was with Mark Malik Brown, the head of the Open Society Foundations. And at the time, he was concerned. He was receiving conflicting reports and, and from uh, his partners on the ground, whether or not his female staff and, and female staff of local Afghan partners would be able to go to work. Uh, what are you hearing so far about how the Taliban thus far are approaching this question of allowing women to to work? Well, most critically, we look at women working in the humanitarian space because yeah. given what we just said, that's that's absolutely vital to get assistance where it's needed. And even though we're not seeing it. Um, consistently allowed across the country. There's still, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but there's still, you know, quite a few provinces where even um, even when women working in, you know, strictly humanitarian field are facing difficulties working or having to travel with a mahram, you know, with a, a male relative as a, as a chaperone. Um, and, you know, again, this is just uh, appalling, really, given the need right now. Plus, um, in other areas, women are mo- still mostly out of most lines of work, certainly not working as civil servants, except in areas where obviously only a woman could be employed, such as what cleaning female toilets or searching, uh, you know, security, uh, conducting searches on, on women. Um, and then, as I mentioned already, many women are still not back teaching because um, other than primary school, most secondary schools are still not um, open. They're not allowed to teach boys. Um, many universities are still not um, allowing women to teach. So it's, um, and journalism, there's a handful of women still working, but under very severe constraints. So, um, you know, this, uh, the problem with women's employment is still is huge. And we haven't seen the Taliban actually budge on this much at all. And if so, only in some provinces after considerable pressure. So the Taliban will be the de facto rulers of Afghanistan for the foreseeable future. What would you say is the appropriate level of diplomatic engagement with the Taliban in order to do whatever the international community can to uh, encourage or entice or compel the Taliban to live up to its obligations under international human rights law? Well, as has been pointed out by a number of Afghans um, who I follow on Twitter, I mean, the U.S. was quite okay with sitting down with the Taliban negotiating the Doha deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so it should be perfectly fine continuing to sit and, and raise all these concerns very, very consistently. That they did raise the, uh, the, the question, which we reported on, on summary executions and disappearances. Well, that should be an ongoing uh, engagement. I also would say not beyond the U.S., I mean, obviously, all the actors who've had that kind of uh, relationship should, there's no reason why they shouldn't, but with the extent that they're using it, um, we're using the leverage we have to get, to get, to press the Taliban to make the changes they need to, to make. Um, that doesn't mean any kind of granting any kind of recognition or not. It's just, you do have to talk to the people who are carrying out the abuses and try to bring pressure on them to stop doing that. Now, you say the Taliban may be the de facto rulers for some time. I would point out that there's still a considerable threat from the Islamic State. Um, and the more the Taliban, I think, try to downplay it, I think you have a good sense that it's uh, they're also quite worried about it, as they should be. 
Uh, well, that I suppose leads into my last question for you, which is, you know, in the coming days or weeks or even months, are there any indicators or inflection points that you will be looking towards that will suggest to you um, how both the political situation in, in Afghanistan evolves and also how the you know, human rights situation evolves? Well, at the moment, we don't see any particularly positive indications. Um, as we say, we're heading into the winter in one of the worst humanitarian crises in, on the planet right now. And uh, no clear sense that the Taliban are going to be able to address um, many of the, the, the problems they face, including, as I said, the ongoing conflict in several provinces with the Islamic State, which may in fact be spreading. The, um, the UN's uh, representative in Kabul said in her remarks to um, the at the General Assembly that the um, uh, Islamic State was now in virtually every province in some capacity. I don't know if that's true, but certainly they are a threat throughout much of the country. And the longer this, the humanitarian and the economic crisis continue, I mean, you have an awful lot of thousands of armed men, armed, angry young men who are not happy with where they are at the moment, not happy they haven't gotten what they wanted out of this war and may be recruitable to the next thing that comes around. And I think everyone who's had an interest in Afghanistan, including all the Western countries that have had troops there, should be very concerned about that as well. Thank you so much, Patricia. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Patricia Gossman. And we will, of course, return to Afghanistan many times over the course of 2022 in this podcast. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye.